Uh, I do want to mention this. Lori and I have been gone a couple of times this summer already. Uh, we went to General Assembly, and I never really did give you an update really on what we did at General Assembly, so I'd like to do that for, for just a, a minute before we get into the sermon. Uh, we increased in, in the number of churches as we have every year since 1973 when the PCA was uh, first formed. This year, not by a lot. We only picked up like 10 churches, and so we have a total of around 1,300 churches now in our denomination, which is uh, it's a large denomination compared to many, but at the same time, it's a little teeny tiny bitty one con- compared to some other ones. Uh, one of the big things we have talked about was uh, the, the committee that was appointed to study the place, uh, the roles of women in, uh, in ministry. And so I've kind of given you a report on that already. And basically what the report came back and said and what, what the assembly agreed on was that there are limitations on what women can do. And, and the principal one is this, is they can't hold ordained offices or elder or deacon uh, but other than that, that within those limitations, that they should be allowed to do anything and everything that God has gifted them to do, and that, that really the church needs to use their giftedness to the utmost. Uh, and so that really was the big thing. All the budgets were approved for all the different, all, all the agencies are doing great, all the committees of the PCA doing great. Covenant College is continuing to grow. Covenant Seminaries continue to grow. Uh, MTW is sending out more missionaries. We have, I think, around 600 foreign missionaries now that are on the field and places all around the world. So uh, if you'd like more details about those things, then if you, you want to talk with me about it later, then uh, I have a report in my office. Okay. We are in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where we started three weeks ago to study, or two weeks ago, to study uh, the instructions that Paul gives to Timothy in regard to the appointment of elders in all of the churches. We're told in Acts chapter 14 that Paul went and he, he, he uh, appointed elders in all of the churches. And so we understand this, that, that elder or it can also be uh, called uh, presbyter or overseer. They're all the same office. Uh, and scripture teaches us that, uh, that there are particular qualifications for men that would hold this office. Okay? And we started working on these qualifications uh, a couple of weeks ago. So I'll go back and start with verse 1 in chapter 3. So trustworthy statement, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. So it's a good thing for men to seek this office. It's a desirable thing for men to seek this office. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money, and that's where we ended last week, so we'll be picking up with verse 4. He must be a one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church 
so that he may not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. So verse 4. He must be one who manages his household well. Now, I would say that that probably is one of the highest callings that a man is ever called to do. There are different ways of looking at it, and I think very often people look at it wrongly. Uh, what it says here is that he manages or he leads, I would say probably lead might be a better word to use here, that he leads his family and he does it well. That what people see in public begins in private. In other words, we understand this, that people are not going to be one way in one context and totally different, absolutely in, in another context. In other words, not one way at home and totally, absolutely different out in public, even though people may tend to do those things. I do want to challenge us with the idea here that it doesn't just include his children, because you get this from the, the passage. It mentions his children specifically, but a household would also include his wife and really anyone else who lived in their home in essence, as a family member. Lori and the kids used to love that movie, The Sound of Music. And I don't remember that much about it, except the way that it kind of began, and that is with the Van Trapp man and his, his family of boys and girls. And his wife had passed away, but I can just remember that the way he called them to attention was blow his whistle and he tooted his whistle and they did this and they did that and whatever. And I just want us to have the, not have the idea that what God is encouraging us here is to be drill sergeants when it comes to our families. Sometimes I think that men have mistakenly understood that to be kind of their role in the household. But the kind of leadership we're talking about here is Christian leadership. And Christian leadership is done through example. I grew up, and I'm sure that a lot of you did, with people telling me, do what I say and not as I do. It took me becoming a father myself uh, to begin to understand that that just doesn't even make any sense and it does not work in the real world. You can't ask people to do things that you're not willing to do yourself. So fathers, husbands, they lead by example. And what we're talking about here is a godly example. Now, I do want to say this. This is important for us to understand. The thing that's called for here is not perfection. It's not absolute perfection. In other words, we're not to be looking for men who have no, no chinks in their armor and no imperfections or anything like that because we know if we're looking for those guys, we're not going to find them. They don't exist. But we are talking about situations where you can actually see manifestations of a godly leading of the household. 
What I would say is this, is a man who first and foremost leads his family well. In other words, he sees that as his principal responsibility, his principal ministry, even above his ministry in the church. Now, anyone that's had children knows it's not a small task to teach them discipline. Some of you still have your little kids, and you're still dealing with the same sins that you were two or three or four or five years ago. Let me just tell you this. You're probably going to be dealing with the same sins when they're 18, maybe 20, maybe 30. We spent a lot of time with Lindsay and Justin over the last few months, and uh, it's amazing you know, how she compete, how they both repeatedly have to ask Luke not to do this, have to ask Sarah not to do that. And it's a daily thing. Sometimes it's an hourly thing. Discipline's not easy, but it's an absolute necessity. Just remember that pastors, in essence, are elders. And I can't say really what it's like to be a preacher's kid because I've never been one. Uh, The only thing I can do is tell you this. Is as far as I perceive from our own children, there really are benefits Because our children understand that there are people in this room that would cut off their right arm for them if they had to do it. In other words, they've experienced love. Our children all have experienced love in a way that they probably never would have if they were not in the position that they were in. We don't doubt it that that you guys really love our kids, you love our family, and you want the best for our family. But at the same time, it puts children in a very difficult situation. Because we understand this. There's a sense, and it's not right, and it shouldn't be that way, but there's a sense in which people have far more expectations for them than they do the rest of the children in the church. They're supposed to be in the very middle of everything that goes on. They're supposed to be absolute angels in the worship service. You know, just sit here quiet, not ever say a word or anything like that. And if, and if any of you guys were around when Stephen was here on a regular basis when he was little, you know that really didn't apply too much in his case. And it would still be true today. But that's just Stephen. But I just want you to understand this, that it's not easy to be an elder and it's not easy to be an elder for a lot of reasons. And one of the reasons is this, is that when you come into office, you not only bring your wife with you, you bring your children with you too. And it puts them in a different place than they were before, whether that's right or wrong or whatever. That's just the reality of things. We looked at Titus chapter 1, verse 6. He is also, Paul adds this thing to the mix. He says that the, the, the children of elders must be believers. Now, how can we apply that to a one-year-old? 
well, we need to understand that it applies when it applies, and that is this, and uh, that there's a sense that comes of faith in Jesus Christ. And at a reasonable age that these children are making professions of faith, which seem to be legitimate professions of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we understand this. We know that some church kids, right? And some of you were church kids, and you grew up, and you left the church, and you were away from the church. That was me and all of that. And I made a profession of faith when I was 12 years old in Jesus Christ. But did I know Jesus? No, I didn't. But this is a particular verse that there are a lot of people that I know take very seriously. You heard me talk about Jack Arnold before? Remember that name? Probably not. <laughs> he, he's passed away now. He's the, he's the pastor who died preaching a sermon uh, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And, and he had uttered these words uh, that as soon as God is done with me, I'm out of here. And he died with a heart attack on the spot in the pulpit on Sunday morning. That made CNN. Because, I mean, who in the world, I mean, it just happened to be that particular passage that he was preaching on immediately before he died. Jack befriended me when I was in seminary. Uh, He was a spiritual father to me in a sense, in some ways. Met with him privately in his office a number of times with some other guys and, and all of that. When he was a pastor... Uh, In his teenage years, one of his sons denied the faith. Jack immediately tendered his resignation to the church. That's how serious he took that particular statement. Now, fortunately, it's very short-lived. His son returned to the fold very, very quickly, just in a matter of days. I, I I guess Jesus just convicted him and... And all of that, but he sought forgiveness uh, and all of that in a very, very short period of time. And the really cool thing about it is Lori and I went to his funeral, and let me tell you, what an epitaph. You wouldn't have believed all the testimonies and things that people share, but one of the coolest things is this, is his son got up, not only as his son, but as a fellow believer in Jesus Christ, that very same son who had denied the faith at one point. If he does not know how to lead or manage his household, how will he care for the church of God? I mean, that's just reasonable, logical, practical sense. Do you think it would be a good idea to have someone manage your money that can't manage their own money? He has to be able to manages household well if we have any expectation at all that he will be able to manage the household of God well. As far as wives go, I just want to say some things too because 
you know, we've talked so much about women being submissive and submitting and, and all of that over, over these weeks. And that's part of the picture here, too, because we're told that the Scripture tells us that wives are supposed to be in submission to their husbands. It's not a place that any of us enjoys being. It's a place that we all basically want to revolt from, typically, because we don't like people to have authority and power over us. And do, what about the culture we're in today? They, you know, they would look upon something like that in a very, very negative kind of way as trying to hold women down and not letting women fulfill their, their dreams and, you know, do this, that, or the other that they're even more capable of doing than men are and those kinds of things. But we need to understand here that, that, that uh, you know, leading your household well, as far as a, a man goes, has to do with leading your wife well. Being a worthy example to her. Not whipping her into submission. As some people might want to read into this. It's not, we're not being encouraged here to strong arm our wives. We're not being encouraged here to put them in their place, etc., etc., etc. What we're being encouraged to do is lead them in a godly fashion by our example. Just as Christ loves us without conditions, guys, our wives need to understand that we love them without conditions too. Don't love you today because you're doing what I want you to do. Don't love you today more because you really made me feel good. Like Tim Keller was talking about on Wednesday night. It's I love you, wife, because I love you, wife. Period. What I would say to you is this, is in those circumstances, a woman will delight to be submissive to her husband. Not one, this is verse 6, not one newly converted in order that he may not become puffed up or prideful and fall into the judgment of the devil. In other words, what we're talking about here is a man whose faith is first tested. Not someone who became a believer two weeks ago or you know, a month ago or maybe even two years ago. We're talking about someone who has proclaimed faith, professed faith, and they stood that faith even in difficult situations for some time. That faith has to be tested. Well, you can understand it would be a big issue if you put a man in office of elder, overseer, over the church, only to find out six months from now that he's not even a believer. Just remember, Jesus describes that rocky soil. He said the seed sometimes falls on that rocky soil, and it, and it looks like it's faith. It looks like the true conversion has taken place. But because the, the soil is rocky, then the root can't penetrate. And then, then, then in no time when persecution comes, then it just wither, 
withers and fades away. So there needs to be someone who's been of the faith for some time, and that faith has, has undergone some serious testing to prove its realness, its genuineness. Now, let me just tell you, that's all but the course that I took. My conversion was really kind of the talk of Seven Rivers for years. Still is sometimes. I had a lot of notoriety at, at Seven Rivers Church. I was kind of famous. And I loved it. I was teaching Bible study when I was, had only been a believer for just a few months, a few months, and I'm talking about two or three months. I was leading a Bible study group. I became a deacon within about one year of my conversion, and I was an elder within about two years of my conversion. Now, let me tell you something. That is a formula for disaster. It never should have happened. Seriously. Because my faith had not been tested. There was another man right about the same time. Very gifted man. Uh, a man who had all kinds of leadership potential, apparently, and was involved in all kinds of things at the church. But he could not serve in church office because his, he and his wife were convicted Baptists. And, and because they couldn't or wouldn't have their children baptized, their young children baptized, then he could not serve as an officer in the church. But he served on the school board for a while. I think he was the chairman of the school board for a number of years. And all of that, he was very much involved in the music ministry in the church in all kinds of different ways. Very a person that people saw up front all the time, almost in leadership roles and that sort of thing. And that went on for a number of years. Then problems began to rise. And he fell away from the faith. So what's the difference? There's only one possible explanation. Grace. God's grace. What drove me, do you think, in those early years? Well, I'd like to think a lot of it had to do with just, I just had this great love for God that came. And let me tell you, I really did have a great love for God. And sometimes I wonder if it's as great now as it was in the very beginning. I was willing to do things that some people were not. Went to Uganda 
And when I initially even agreed to go to Uganda, I wasn't even a professing believer yet. I couldn't believe, I was in this church that had hundreds of people, and I, couldn't, I was just curious why in the world all these guys weren't looking you know, forward to possibly going to Uganda or on this great adventure. But it wound up being Lori and I, and there were two other people that went, a, a man and his wife, we went. And when we came, it, was just, it, it amazed me how people thought that was just unbelievably great to do something like that. We actually had, Lori and I were talking with uh, a retired pastor's wife one night, and she looked at us. She said, I could never do something like that. And I'm going, really? That's nothing. Let me tell you guys, things like that fueled my pride. I enjoyed the limelight. That had a lot to do with a lot of the things I did. I liked the attention. I liked to be well thought of. But let me tell you, it was a formula for disaster. He must have a good uh, testimony or reputation outside the church in order that he will not fall into disgrace and the snare of the devil. In other words, this is one of, the, one of the characteristics or attributes you should find in the man that you nominate for the office of elder, and that is this, that people outside the church even would say that he is a good man. Now, why would they say things like that? They would say things like that probably because of this mean, the demeanor that he has, the way that they've seen him in, engage in particular activity around them. Helpful to other people, encouraging to other people, willing to do things maybe other people are not willing to do for you. Going out of his way. Going the extra mile. I was having a conversation with a man one day that, uh, you know, I used to work for Far Power and so a lot of the people I knew, came in contact with, were people that worked at Florida Power at the nuclear plant. And I was talking with a guy one day and uh, trying to witness to him. I was inviting him to church. And, and what he said to me is he was referring to another man that worked uh, at Florida Power in the nuclear plant that also went to Seven Rivers. And what he said to me is this, is if, if that person is a Christian, I want nothing to do with it. I can tell you honestly, that was my first thought when this whole thing began to unfold with me. Because this man had a terrible reputation at work. Awful. 
In other words, I would imagine nine people out of ten that you ask about this particular person, they would have said he's an absolute jerk. And he was. When I became a believer, we had a conversation. I told him, I said, you're one of the reasons it took me so long. That's how bad his reputation was. But he was a totally different person at church. People at church loved him. He had all these attributes as you're talking about here at church. He was always there. He was always helping people. He was very thoughtful and et cetera, and et cetera, et cetera. But let me tell you, the people who worked, if that was not their impression of this man at all. Eventually became an elder in the church. I've always often wondered how many stayed away because of something else I've thought of too is how many stayed away because of me. Because of the pride and the arrogance they saw in me. What would your neighbor say about you? Seriously. Do they even know your name? Do you know their names? What would they say about you? What would the people you work with say about you? What would the people you go to school with say about you? Are you the same person here and a different person out there? I hope not. I hope not. The devil has his ways. Described here as traps. And one of the biggest one, guys, is pride. He can take a little pride and he can blow it way up and make a real mess of things. Sin. We don't think so much about this. Is Sometimes he uses sin against us. Harshness. Things like that.
He wants to destroy you. Because he wants to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. He hates it. He furies against it. With every breath he takes. And he's very willing and joyful when he can use one of God's children to accomplish his end to some degree in some way. That's got to be the greatest victory that he ever that he ever experiences. I can't understand that. I really don't. You know, we know the devil knows a lot. We know that Satan knows a lot, right? We know he knows a lot more about just about everything than you and I know, even now. But you just wonder, you wonder why, if he knows how things are going to end up, why he continues to do what he does. There can only be one explanation. And that is he's called the great deceiver, and he's such a great deceiver, he's deceived himself into believing that somehow he's going to be able to pull, pull it off. That somehow he's going to be able to push God off the throne. That's his intention. That's his will. That's his desire. That's his passion. That's what he lives for. Don't think for one minute that he won't use God's people, if he possibly can, to make that happen. Or at least give himself a better chance of making that happen in his own deceived mind. I don't think we think about the devil very much. We don't talk about the devil very much here. When's the last time we talked about the, the devil in, in Bible study groups over a lengthy period of time? His name gets mentioned every now and then, just very rarely and kind of on the side. We need to understand he is the greatest adversary of God. And he will do anything and everything he can to get the upper hand. And that means he will do anything and everything with you he possibly can do. And he would love to do that. But he may be the strong man. Oh, we got a much stronger man. Right? You need to understand this. One of my seminary professors used to say this all the time. You need to know this. That is that God could squish Satan like a grape at any moment. He is nothing to him. He's no threat to him at all. He's not this all-powerful being that has any chance of, of overcoming God at all. And the truth is this. Is he will never overcome us either. But only for one reason. And that's because we are Jesus Christ. He's our protector. And he protects us from a lot of things. And one of those is the evil one. So those are the qualifications for being an elder. Have you been thinking about it? Have you been praying about it?
And let me challenge you with, with this other idea, too, and that is this, that we already have men in this church who serve as elders. Are you praying for them? Because Satan would love to get a hold of Lloyd May because he could wreak havoc in this place. He would love to do that. Or Joe Paul or anybody else. Sometimes I think we think that the elders are the ones who just have the responsibility and because they're doing everything or they're doing this, that, and the other, then we don't have any responsibility of the picture anymore because you need to realize that's not true. One of those things is, as we said before, that you guys are the ones who identify these men and you nominate these men for office. That the session does not determine who's going to be an elder at Springs Presbyterian Church. We go to great lengths to make sure that does not happen. That those men that are left standing when all is said and done are going to be the men that you guys pray about, you watch, and you nominate. And unless, let me tell you something, unless we have very, very good reason to disqualify someone, we will not do that. So those forms will be available in the next, for the whole month of August. And let me just say this. You need to think about it. You need to pray about it. Don't procrastinate too much. This happens every single time because we we say this every time. The last day that we're going to accept nominations is the last day of August. And lo and behold, someone will come in the second week of September and give me a nomination form. After training's even started. So just hear me very clearly. We will take them for the whole month of August, but we will not take them after. Okay? So think about it. Pray about it. Don't rush. I'm not saying to rush. Don't rush out there right now and do it. You need to think about it, pray about it, and all of that. But that will be going on through the month of August. Okay? Next Sunday, you guys are going to have a great treat. I'm not going to be here. <laughs> Lauren and I have been away, and, but we've been, we've been working. We were working in North Carolina when we went to General Assembly, and when we went with Justin and Lindsay down to the Keys, we were working the whole week. And so we came back here not feeling refreshed or rejuvenated or anything like that. I don't know if you guys have seen it in me, but I am just whooped. And so we're taking about 10 days off to just do some fun stuff we want to do and, uh, and that kind of thing. But Edge is going to preach for you guys next Sunday. So it's first time in the pulpit, so be praying for Edge this week. And we're looking forward to, to hearing that.